This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Damon Murdoch, the principal lawyer of LawPath Legal. LawPath is an online legal platform that's making it easy for businesses to get assistance with the law. In today's episode, we discuss some of the most common legal documentation that businesses need to have in place to protect themselves. You'll learn the correct way to register a business name, how you can protect your brand, and Damon will share what best practice is when it comes to legal documentation for your customers. Let's jump in. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Damon. Thank you for the invite. Now, Damon, you have an extensive resume. And for those that don't know you, can you please share your professional journey with us? So I'm Canadian. I have a finance degree. Did a lot of accounting back in the day. Moved to Australia. Started off in a litigation law firm in Sydney. Started specializing more in intellectual property. Had some fairly large, high-profile cases started my own firm, focusing on startups, been doing that for nine years. And now I'm the legal practice director of LawPath Legal, which is a law firm essentially within the LawPath, the technology. We are really excited to be talking to you. The word startups and being a lawyer that helps startups is sort of what the episode is going to be about today. So I'm really excited to be interviewing you. You are the principal lawyer at LawPath. We interviewed Tom Willis and it is an awesome website, provides SMEs with legal documentation. How did you actually get involved with LawPath? How did that all come about? I was kind of the guinea pig to LawPath. LawPath had just started out out of the incubator Pollinizer and it was founded by Nick Abraham, who's now a partner or lead in Norton Rose. And he's one of the futurists. He talks about NFTs all the time. But he saw legal eventually going digital. So he started LawPath. And when they had just started out, I had also just started my law firm. And when I just started, I was focused on startups. There was focus on startups. I approached them. And then over the last nine years, we've been working together where we were slowly trying out different things. Client buy a contract, get a lawyer review, pay a certain fixed fee, get unlimited calls with a lawyer. And so my firm had worked with them over the years trying to get basically the platform to work and to really develop it to make it actually really efficient and productive for the startups. And then about two years ago, LawPath approached me and we came up with a pilot program, which was unlimited phone calls for new startups on any new legal issue for up to 30 minutes. So this was like a subscription plan that LawPath was selling. And so my law firm started servicing those phone calls and we did that for about 18 months. And then LawPath said, okay, well, we want to buy this arm of your business. We want you to now come into LawPath, start up a law firm for us. So I brought some of my lawyers across from my firm and then we started up LawPath Legal. So I've been with them since they were two staff 
And now they have 75 plus. I think they've raised about 10 mil now, more than 10 mil now. It's an amazing business. Like I said, we spoke to Tom and it was nice to get a feel for a tech startup that went from zero to 75 staff, all built in Australia. And it's really commendable to what you guys have achieved there. So let's dive deep into it. Founders and business owners that start up a business are very attached to the name. I'm an accountant, as you know, and they come to us with an idea and generally it's like this name, they've thought of a name. So I've looked at the Law Path site. One of the offerings is, you know, registering a business name. Talk about our founders that love their name and what does it all mean about registering a business name? No matter how much you love your name, you want to Google first to see if someone else has already taken it. Because the last thing you want to do is spend a lot of money in marketing, branding, Google AdWords, Facebook page, and then you get a cease and desist letter from someone saying, you're stolen our name, you're infringing our copyright. So even though you love your name, two things about it. Number one, make sure you look it up and make sure no one else has it. And number two, oftentimes you change your name once you start growing because a lot of times you pivot. So don't be too attached to your name. Let's just talk about that. What do you actually do if you want to come up with a name? How do you know if someone else has it? So there's a couple things. If you're a LawPath member, you can go and they have a trademark system, which is integrated with a third-party technology where you can do a trademark search. So you do a trademark search, you'll develop a report. It'll tell you whether you can or can't or likely can get a trademark. If you're not a LawPath member, you can go to IP Australia. You can just Google IP Australia trademark search, and you can do a search to see if anyone else has registered a trademark that's the same name as yours. The other thing that you want to do is you can go to the ASIC website, or you can just do an ABN lookup. Just type in ABN lookup. ABN lookup has a list of all the different business names out there. You can type it in, and you can see if someone else has it. Now, the fact that your name might not be identical to someone else's doesn't mean that they can't protect it. So I'll give this as an example. We get this all the time. We have someone that's registered a business name. They now think that they're protected. They now think that they've got the best name. It's ABC. And I said, that's great. Your business name protects you from someone else getting another business called ABC. It doesn't stop someone getting a business name, ABC Solutions, ABC Holdings, ABC Enterprise, ABC Corporation, ABC Services. So all you've got is ABC at all. So a business name doesn't protect you at all. And if you actually want protection, you need to go and get a trademark. And a trademark comes in various different classes. And I always use the example of barefoot. Barefoot is a beer or an alcohol beverage. And it's also a shoe manufacturer. And there was a big dispute back in the day, but it's a good example of how trademarks work. Barefoot, the footwear, is able to use the word barefoot because they sell footwear. And barefoot, the alcohol, can use the word that in alcohol because they're all in different classes. So you could have a business name or a trademark that's identical to someone else's, but in a different class. So if you're an accounting firm, you would have it in business services. But then because you're doing podcasts, you might also have it in the class that deals with education, for instance. Okay, that's really interesting because a lot of our clients that do come up start with a business name first. It might actually be a company name linked with a business name and generally the trademark discussion doesn't come up. So is it advisable for those ones that have aspirations to be quite large to take it one step further 
check the trademarks because if they do make some serious noise in the market or they are dabbling in a market that's quite similar to someone else, you're only going to pick it up from the trademark search. Is that sort of right? Yeah. Look, the Google search is always the best. If someone else <laughs> using the name and you can't find them on Google, then they're probably not trading and they're probably not using their trademark and they can't actually protect it if they're not trading. I normally say for a startup that doesn't have any money, you don't necessarily need to go straight to a trademark. Trademark's good to have because it stops other people from competing against you and use your name. But the main thing is it stops other people in the future from using that name and then making you change your name. You don't have the funds to get a trademark. The first thing you want to make sure is that you're not copying someone else's name and you're not going to spend a lot of money on Google AdWords and Facebook marketing to then find out that you've just created a brand that's exactly the same as somebody else. Then you get a cease and desist letter and you have to rebrand or threaten to be sued. The next thing I wanted to ask you is a lot of businesses now sell product online. What documentation do businesses need to consider when they've got a website and they're actually selling online? A lot of startups just create a Shopify store or something similar. And those come with the standard basic terms and conditions to sell goods and a privacy policy. And I don't have any problem with those. Those are pretty good for a startup. What I normally say is, and so you, you want your terms and conditions, you want a privacy policy, you might be given those by your web developer or Shopify or someone like that. And those are great, but you eventually start having your pain points. Over time, you start figuring out that clients aren't paying you or you're refunding people or there's chargebacks or there's fraud where people are buying the goods and then charging it back and then you're having troubles. And that's when it's probably time to start customizing it. So number one, you want your terms and conditions. Number two, you want your privacy policy. There's various places you can get them for fairly cheap. Again, talking about LawPath, it's $396 a year. You get access to over 350 contracts, and those include different terms and conditions for selling a service, terms and conditions for a subscription base, terms and conditions for goods. And those are really easy, accessible documents that you can make that's going to help you out. The next thing you want to do is if you're going to start your business, whether you're going to create your own website or not, if you are then I highly recommend software development agreement. I don't know how many startups that we end up dealing with who's hired a friend or hired a software developer that's promised in the world for normally quite reasonably priced, and then they put them at the bottom of the list and they don't do it on time and they drag it out and you never get to actually launch your business and it goes over budget and all these other things. So Normally, the software development agreement is really important because I always say it's like building a house. So in the Victorian Supreme Court, for instance, they have the building construction intellectual property list. So the judge hears both cases. And it's because software development is almost the same as building a house. So in construction, you lay your concrete slab, a relevant building surveyor looks at it, they sign off on it, you pay your claim, they start building the frame. Same with software development or web development is you figure out what your plans are, what you actually need, the architecture around it, the functionality of it, possibly what language it's going to be written in. You then work out the stages. So step one, step two, step three, due dates, budget. And so as you go, you slowly make sure it works. They deliver this first part, you test it, you pay them, and you go down process by process. If it's not a big bill, let's say it's just a fairly 
low cost website, you definitely want to get a due date because some developers just get really busy. They don't intend to delay it and go over budget, but oftentimes they do. And if you don't have a due date to hold them to, they'll just make up excuses like you didn't get back to me quick enough or whatever it is. So that's the next document I highly, highly recommend. Maybe a refund policy, change of mind, you can't return your goods. And how does that refund policy work? So normally you have to spell out how to do a refund. So who's paying for the cost to return it to you? Who's paying for the cost to send the goods back if they've been repaired? What's the process and so on? I'm really interested in the software development agreement because I've never really heard of that before. In a construction world where builders build your home, generally it's a HIA agreement or some kind of contract that they get the client to sign. Are you saying that a business owner that's developing a website or a software goes and engages a software company and then they dictate a little bit of the contract or they create a document that's called a software development agreement that they then keep the developers accountable to? I've never really heard that before. Yeah, so a lot of times a software developer or web developer will just give you a proposal. It'll just say, we'll do this for this much money sign here, these are your payment terms, give me my deposit, and then I'll deliver this in eight to 10 weeks, but we're not bound by the time. Whereas a software development agreement actually says, all right, well, let's work out in the first two weeks what the actual scope of works is, or if they haven't already given you a full proposal of exactly what they're gonna do, then you sign off the agreement, you work for the first two weeks, You work out what the actual scope is, the functionality, what it's going to look like. And then after they've done that, they give you another proposal, which basically says, all right, we're going to deliver your main page with the tabs and the look and feel of it within the first two weeks. And then after that, we're going to start building in your store. And then after that, we're going to start adding in your content and your blog. And so it's a slow process of building up the website into what it's going to be it can be a long drawn out process. And it was a long drawn out process with no due dates, time periods, budget, payment claims. A lot of times someone will just pay them 50% in advance and then you're stuck. They're not delivering it on time. You've already paid the money. And one of the biggest disputes we have is people trying to fight for their money back because the website's not working as it's supposed to. It doesn't have the functionality it's supposed to. It's extremely slow because they use the wrong language or it's just never delivered. That's really good advice. I think it's an area that we've been involved in a little bit as well with clients where clients have gone from sort of a Shopify platform where they've grown out, grown that, and they've then engaged in a software developer. And we're talking, you know, six figures plus new build. And then it just takes longer than expected. But we're talking big business And they're trying to go from Shopify to something much, much bigger. And it actually is like, it's their store. It's it's like a bulldozer going through your shop front and then they're going, oh yeah, we'll, we'll fix it next week. And the customers can't go into the store. Their clients have been wanting these, this extra features and these extra opportunities on their website or extra logins or extra, whatever it is. And they've been promising it, but the developer just month after month after month doesn't deliver. Does it also mean if you do go to litigation or dispute resolution that having an agreement like this also will help dispute resolution in court? Significantly. 
So most of the time a developer or a software or website developer would just give you a proposal and it doesn't have any firm commitments or in small font, it will say in accordance with our terms and conditions on our website or somewhere that you haven't seen. And they always have terms that says, if we did give you a timetable, we're not bound by it. That's just an <laughs> estimate and uh, that you can't hold us to it. So it's almost turning the table and saying, we will look at your agreement, but we want some milestones. We want some actual due dates and we want to break down the big project into little pieces. You can use their agreement, but you want to break down the actual proposal into pieces with due dates and payment terms. And then you want to look at that clause that deals with due dates and you want to tighten it up and make sure that there's actually something that's binding. So like in construction, again, as I mentioned, the, the Supreme Court has the same list because the contracts are exactly the same. If you get a big software developer, it's almost very similar to an HIA or master builders contract. And it says, if you're not going to hit a due date, then you got to issue an extension of time notice and you got to explain why aren't you meeting the due date? Did the client not give you information within a reasonable period of time or has it been a change? And if you're going to change something, well, what's that change? And is, is there going to be an extra cost to it? And how long that change going to take and so on. So it deals with locking down the period of time to develop, but also locks down the variation process where they're going to add or change it and the extension of time. So you keep your time period in control. And like I said, all startups, it's business name first, Mr. Accountant, how are we going to structure this? And it's a website or a software of some kind. So really good advice there, Damon. And for those businesses that are making payments or where they're collecting payments online, are there any things there that need to be addressed? I guess when we've got PayPal and Afterpay and all these things that do go into things like Shopify platforms, but we're handling people's money, we're handling their credit cards. Is there anything that needs to be done in that regard? Most of the time, you're not actually taking the credit card because they're using Stripe or a third-party payment gateway. But the problem with Stripe and PayPal and all these other platforms is that if there's a dispute, they just refund the money back to the customer a lot of the times. And it's not uncommon where people will get a good, they don't like it. And rather than dealing with your website, they'll just do a chargeback on their credit card. And it's very easy to do that. You just say fraud. And then the credit card company and the payment gateway just automatically refunds them the money. So one of the things that's probably important, if you can, is to build in another level of technology. And that's what I was working with one of my clients recently, was that they kept on having fake buyers with fake addresses, with fake credit cards, ordering items, and then they would order the item to certain addresses, which was a fake address, and then cancel the credit card or cancel. And so they were ended up shipping things all across the country and then all the payments were taken back out of their bank account. So if you can get some kind of know your client technology built into that, which is like green ID, for instance, you just upload or take a picture of your driver's license. That's the next step. We've been doing online business for a long time and know your client's been around for a long time, but there's so much more fraud now. I don't know how many times I get text messages and phone calls from fraudsters and they're now going to these stores and they're buying goods and then they're selling them elsewhere and they're charging back the client. So trying to get some kind of identification or a little bit more information that you might not normally take especially for larger orders. So 
if you're selling goods online and there maybe if you can put a limit in it if it's over $250 that there's a manual check and that might manual check might include a phone call or something along those lines in terms of know your client if you do use a stripe or a paypal by doing that additional layer of identification that just irons out the issue with the client and then you can still use a stripe and still use a paypal to take payment and if there is a chargeback then you know who you're dealing with is that sort of right. the strategy the main thing is you know who you're dealing with you can now report them to the place you can take them to NCAT, VCAT, QCAT, one of the small claim tribunals <laughs> in the relevant states. And you can do it yourself because it's so easy. It's, they bought this grid. I delivered this grid. They didn't pay me. There's really no defense for them. Let's move on to sort of more than non-online businesses. What documents and or agreements should be in place when dealing with customers of non-online businesses? So those builders, tradies, accounting firms that don't do stuff online. Do you have any advice for startups that aren't online and provide services potentially B2B and what sort of things that they might be needing? Every industry is different and every industry is unique. And sometimes we don't actually have agreements. Sometimes we just have purchase order or quote. And a lot of times it says by paying us, you accept our terms and conditions on our website. So even though you're more traditional business, you can still put your terms and conditions up on your website if you have the right clauses in the agreement. And just from a high level, back in the day, the first time click wrap agreements came out, that's like your typical Microsoft. You, you buy your software, you tick to accept, and then you're in a bound contract. In Australia, that's deemed legally binding. Whereas a browse wrap agreement is where you go to someone's website, you don't actually tick anything and then someone tries to hold you to those terms. In Australia, those terms are only binding if you've brought it to their attention and they knew about those terms prior to entering into the transaction with you. So an example of that is that if you're doing renovations and you're a small tradie and you have a quote and you have on the bottom, this quote is to be read in conjunction with our terms and conditions found on our website found here, by paying us or accepting this quote, you're accepting our terms. You've now reasonably brought your terms to their attention, but you don't need to give them a whole 18 page contract. You can just give them a one pager. I like that. That actually makes it a little bit easier to do your traditional work. Some other things to think about is really looking at your business and seeing whether you've had any issues in the past. And that's what I talk about is your pain points where people have have had problems and trying to fix those problems. And a lot of times you can fix them in your terms. I'm also a panel lawyer for Master Builders Victoria. So I know the, that industry really well. And if we look at the main reason why there's a dispute, it's normally because the specifications or the details in the contract just aren't good enough. It's what was included while the builder says, oh, well, it's in the builder's range. So then the owner goes and wants to go buy this bathtub and the builder says, oh no, that's not in my range. And then it's like, oh, well, I'll get these tiles. It's like, no, no, those tiles aren't in our range either. And then you start having a dispute. Well, what is it? It's like, oh, well, there's those crappy tiles over there that no one actually buys, right? <laughs> so the builders, as they grow, they start to prepare better specifications, pictures of the tiles, names of the brands, the location and stores where they buy their product so that the clients actually knows what they get. So if you look at a traditional business, 
it's normally not talking about building anymore, just any kind of business. It's normally looking at what's included and what's excluded. And we get this a lot for accountants as well. You know, they didn't file my self-managed super fund tax returns. And it's like, well, it was never included in your engagement. They never told me I had to file my bass. Well, a good accountant should have told you that. But And so it's really spelling out what is included, what's not included. And at the beginning, explaining that to the client. That's really the main thing. So you can have just a really good one pager if you've just specified what's in and what's out. It's funny about, oh, I think it must have been nearly 10 plus years ago, we actually did a whole revamp of our terms of agreements and terms of engagement. And we never had that previously. We had things that are included and things that are excluded. And it was really funny because the things that we exclude, we specify them. Like, And generally when a client comes to us, it's income tax return, financial statements, and very minor stuff. And the engagement grows from there. And generally they'll ask us to do more. But initially, lots of things are excluded. And I'll come back to go, I've got to sign this. But you said you're, you know, you do lots of different things. You can help me out with all these things, but you've excluded them from your engagement letter. I'm like, yeah, we've excluded them, but you have to specifically ask for it. And it does make sometimes doing business a little bit sort of challenging in terms of trying to provide awesome service and customer satisfaction, but at the same time, protecting yourself. So we've had a scenario where we, you know, we have payroll tax excluded, advice on land tax. And things like that. And we do that kind of work. We do advise on those kinds of taxes. But to begin with, they're excluded just because things do come up, like you said. And why didn't you tell me I needed to register for payroll tax? Well, I didn't know. I haven't seen you for six months and I didn't know you hired 35 people and you don't realize. So it is important for SMEs to understand, first and foremost, you need to protect yourself and and I guess agreements and contracts and terms of trade are a part of that. So great advice. And yeah, the excluded and included one's a good one. And you hear a lot of times people are saying, well, we're old fashioned. We don't believe in contracts. And those are the guys that always end up in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and it takes me back to over the years, I had so many different cases. I had builders who do a lot of handshake deals. They have to have a contract by law, but they don't put anything else in writing. So when they start changing it, and it's always that big case. It's always, this is now my retirement. I've been running my business like this for 25 years, no issue. I'm now going to get my big super fund. This one's going to be my retirement. And that's where it all goes pear-shaped. Yep. The way they've actually been doing it isn't right. And the fact that it does go belly up if you don't have it in writing. The other thing that I wanted to touch on was a lot of our startups don't go straight off and employ staff from day one. And a lot of them build their business up and they'll maybe leverage using contractors and subcontractors to leverage that process until they get good enough to be able to pay for staff. Let's talk about contractors. Is there anything unique that we need to do in dealing with contractors and how do we deal with them in terms of their agreements and so on? So when you hire an employee, there's certain things that are automatically implied into an employment relationship, whether you have a contract or not. So the duty of confidentiality automatically exists. The building of any kind of intellectual property at all, prices, anything that's confidential or intellectual property automatically owned by the employer. But with a contractor, none of that applies. And so you actually have to have it in writing to protect yourself. So you actually have to have a clause saying, anything I tell you is confidential. And 
anything that you are building for us or making for us is owned by us. And then the most important one is the non-solicitation clause, which is saying, we're going to be working with you. You're going to have direct contact with our suppliers. You're going to have direct client contact. You're not going to steal our clients. And that's what I find the most important when it comes to contractors, because the contractor already knows how to start their own business. They're already running their own business. Their entrepreneurship already is kind of known. So for you not to protect your own clients from them is a bad idea. And what you really need to do is get a non-solicitation clause, which is fairly simple and most contractors accept it. And it's not a restraint to trade. It's not saying you're not going to go and compete against me. It's that anyone I've introduced you to, you're not going to go and solicit them away and go compete against us or take their work away from us. That's step one. Those are the three essential clauses, I would say. But the other one is working internationally. And a lot of people don't know this, so I'll give you a bit of a spiel on this that I recite probably 150 times a month. But essentially, there's something called the New York Convention. It's made by the United Nations, and it's called the New York Convention for the Foreign Recognition and Enforcement of Arbitration Awards 1958. What it says is essentially this, is that two commercial parties who are entering into a commercial transaction can choose not to go to court in a foreign jurisdiction or in different jurisdictions. They can actually choose their own law and they can choose where that dispute's going to be resolved. And if you have an arbitration clause in your agreement that says Melbourne's the applicable law and the dispute resolution center in Melbourne is where we're going to resolve our dispute, then in that situation, they can't haul you into any court around the world. You can actually haul them into an arbitration in Melbourne. But it gets better than that because after that, you get what's called an arbitration decision. And now you can recognize that decision in 151 countries around the world. So for instance, if your software developer stole your ID, started up another business in another country, well, they don't live here. So you could sue them here, but they don't have any assets here and they don't really don't care about an Australian judgment. But what you do is you sue them here, they don't respond, you get an arbitration decision here, and then you go to their hometown and then you have it recognized by the courts there because their country has signed the New York Convention and you can enforce it against them. If you have a stronger bargaining position with an international contractor, definitely get an arbitration clause. And then the other thing is a lot of times people will say, well, they won't agree to Australian law and they won't agree to Melbourne as the venue. And I said, well, choose two places that are mutually inconvenient to both. If you have a mutual bargaining position and you're dealing with someone in New York, say that the applicable law is going to be English law in Singapore. Now you both have to fly to Singapore so you're more likely to resolve it amicably. But not only that, you've got to both fly to Singapore and you both have to get a lawyer that you don't know out of England paying in pounds. So it's uh, just a good way to, to meet halfway and to be able to get a contract that's fair and doesn't have a bargaining position that's unfavorable to the other party. I love it. And for those that do listen to us, episode 25, we actually did an episode with Mike Ehrenstein a lawyer from Miami, he actually went through the New York convention and picking the venue, picking the fight, where to fight. 
and it was an awesome episode. So you've given us a really nice summary of that episode and really important for our startups that haven't listened to that episode, an understanding of when you do do international business, we are now a global economy. It is important to get that right. So really interesting. But you would have seen many SMEs, Damon, and I'm sure you've seen some horror stories. So what are the biggest mistakes that SMEs make when it comes to legal documentation? I think the biggest mistakes generally is going back to the software development agreement. Yeah. That's one of the most common issues that we deal with with startups. The second one is when you're just a startup, you can't necessarily afford an employee. And so you might still call someone an employee or you call them a co-founder or you call them something, but you don't have any contract. They're in limbo. Are they a contractor? Are they employee? The problem is if you haven't clearly defined it, if you haven't given them a contractor agreement or you haven't given them an employment contract, then you're going to be in breach of pretty much every section of the Fair Work Act because you're not paying them fortnightly or monthly. You're not giving them pay slips. You're not accruing their leave. You're not paying them Australian minimum wage or the wage in accordance with the modern award. You've breached everything. And that's the problem is that someone could be friends right now, but if it all goes pear-shaped, they could come and say, well, actually I was an employee. I was working 40 hours a week. I was coming into the office nine to five. I had an email address. My title was this. Everything, if it looks and smells like an employee, it is probably an employee. And that's the problem. So the main thing is clearly defining who they are. And this goes back to co-founders as well. And the second most common dispute I get is three people start a business together. You got your chief of marketing, you got your chief of operations, you got your CTO, whatever it is. And everybody says, okay, we're all going to get 33% shares each. We're all going to go into this together. And first, we're going to get the CTO to build the software. And once it starts making money, we're all going to quit our jobs. <laughs> and then we'll all drive that business. And what happens is that the CTO quits his job. And then he's, he or she is now building it. Everybody has an income. This person's stuck all by themselves doing everything. Then it gets going and it goes live. But it's not making enough income for the other two to quit their jobs. So they're still not doing anything. And basically, one person ends up doing everything. And so the way you can resolve that is a shareholders agreement. And so I always talk about founder vesting terms. And it basically says, all right, we've all got 33% shares each. Fantastic. But we've all got to earn our shares. So we still have a right to vote. We still have a right to a director. We still have a right to get dividends. We have the shares as if we have them. But there's a, a situation where you have to earn them. And we normally do, the most common is you got to work in the business for four years, four years times 12 months, 48 months. And month on month, you earn one divided by 48 of your shareholder. And so you slowly earn your shares. And if you quit after 24 months, then you've earned 24 over 48 of your shares. So you've earned half, you get to keep half your shares you lose the other half of the shares that you haven't earned and the company or the other founders can buy them back for a dollar. If you're giving shares to anybody for a service, they need to be on vesting conditions because there's no obligation on them to actually do anything. And what happens is if they leave the business or don't do anything, you're now stuck. You now have someone 
who owns 33% of the business who hasn't done anything and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't sue them and get your shares back because you gave them to them for $1 for paid up capital. They bought it for that dollar and there's no conditions attached. So that's the biggest thing is tying in those shares to vesting conditions and then having a contractor's agreement attached to that that says, these are your obligations. And if your contractor's agreement's terminated, your engagement's terminated, your shares stop vesting, we can buy them back. Damon, the other area that we sort of get questions asked a lot, especially with startups, is the founder will say, look, I can't really afford to hire this talent. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire him. I've told him that he gets nothing for his services, but he's going to get some sweat equity or some equity in lieu of his services. He's currently not a director or a shareholder. Is that something that's allowed, advisable that you do? What's to go there? It's a very common mistake that we see all the time. And the problem is, is an employee must get their entitlements in accordance with the National Employment Standards and the Fair Work Act. And what that says is they got to get paid a wage within a regular pattern. So normally 14 days or, or monthly, they've got to accrue their annual leave entitlements. They got to get paid their annual leave. So if you hire them as an employee for shares, you're again, breaching all the legislation. And if you're going to do that, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, you've got to hire them as a contractor, not as an employee. Another thing that a lot of people will do is saying, look, I can't afford you as a software developer on $180,000 a year. So will you take 120 a year and I'll give you this many options? That's okay. That's okay because you're giving them options, not for a salary. So you don't specify it in the contract because then it can be seen as income tax. You'd have income tax because if you're giving the options in exchange for salary foregone, but if you put them on a 120 salary and then give them options, under an employee share scheme, for instance, for loyalty to the business, then that's okay. But you can't be paying an employee strictly in shares or options without actually paying them a wage. So put them as a contractor instead. There's a lot of other things I wanted to cover on today, but we might get you back in, Damon, because one of the areas that I really wanted to touch on and something that our listeners can keep an eye on is how we give away some shares to our staff and talking about employee share arrangements, employee share option plans, and all those things around employee shares. Damon, I want to say thank you so, so much for joining me on the show today. It's been such an informative discussion. I hope some of our SMEs have taken something away from today's discussion and can implement something in their business to hopefully save them a dollar and assist them in their journey of business. Thank you so much, Damon. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Damon, there's a special offer for our listeners through your company that you're involved with, with LawPath, and and a special offer that they can utilize. Do you want to talk us a little about that and what you're doing for us? I'll just mention briefly, LawPath, they have an essentials plan. And basically what that does is it gives you access to over 350 legal documents. So if you want to create employment contract, contract agreement, shareholders agreement, and even term sheet and subscription agreement, people buying shares and so on, it digitalized that. So you can create all your own contracts by answering a bunch of questions. There's over 350. Normally it's $396 a year, but for your listeners of this podcast, they're knocking off $100. So you can go to lawpath.com.au forward slash bottom line, 
and you can get access to a hundred dollar discount to that that's the annual plan awesome and we'll put that in our show notes so for those listeners you can go to the show notes and get that offer straight from your podcast listening device this is the bottom line a show designed to help australian businesses succeed this podcast was produced by accountancy firm alexander spencer At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.